Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. The book of Ecclesiastes is introduced to us as the words of the Koheleth, or words of the teacher. Our teacher is eager for us to come to understand God's sovereignty over all the seasons in our lives. Yet, where some seasons simply happen on us, our birth, our death, there are other seasons that call us to discern, to listen for God's voice, and to respond with human agency. Let's turn now to the words of the teacher from Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Just take a moment to think about what it might be like to live just one day of your life without some way of measuring time. In other words, no watch around your wrist no clocks on the wall or the nightstand, no digital clock on your microwave or on your dashboard or your smartphone, no uh, clock towers or bell towers in town center, no Alexa or Siri to cheat and check in with every once in a while. Could you, could you get through even a single day without wondering, am I late or am I early? Um, is it five o'clock yet? Can, can I leave the office? Uh, did, I, did I miss opening kickoff today? Uh, or how much longer is this preacher going to be talking? <laughs> you take it a step further and imagine going through a single day without a schedule or a calendar to tell you where you need to be or what you should be doing or who you need to be meeting with right now. No Outlook or Google Calendar no leather-bound day planner in your briefcase, no meeting notifications popping up on your smartphones, without a calendar. But you wonder, now is my, my son's soccer game today or was it, is it tomorrow? Um, did I miss Taco Tuesday this week, right? Throw out the clocks, throw out the calendars for a day, a week, Forever, could you live your life without measuring time? We have deadlines to make. We have planes to catch. We have projects to complete, papers to turn in, people to meet with. Um, calendars and clocks, they, they have become, in the modern world, uh, masters of our lives. But the idea 
of, of living our lives according to allocated blocks of time. This is a relatively new concept in, in human history. The idea actually originated with the Benedictine monks who determined uh, in the 15th century or so that we shouldn't have a bunch of wasted time because we get ourselves into trouble. They said idleness is the enemy of the soul. And so they created time, clocks. By the 15th century, there were, there were more clock towers throughout Europe than there were churches. By the 17th century, those clocks had minute hands for the first time. By the 18th century, those same clocks now had seconds hands. And that was right about the same time that the Industrial Revolution was getting underway. And you see the connection. Our, our interest and, and obsession over time is, 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 is connected to our ability to produce and to be efficient and to be profitable. But when we divided and then subdivided our lives into seconds and even now nanoseconds and minutes and hours and days, we did surrender a whole lot in the process. For starters, we, we distanced ourselves from the natural rhythms of, of life. I mean, have you noticed that there are very few things today that we can really call um, seasonal anymore? Uh, here in Colorado, you can, you can buy heirloom tomatoes in the middle of winter. They have to be shipped about a thousand miles across the country, but you can get them. You can buy uh, summer squash in winter. I went to the supermarket this week. I asked for summer squash. He said, we don't get those until the winter. <laughs> the real problem, however, with, with our obsession over time is that we've distanced ourselves from the ancient wisdom of Scripture, which reminds us that every moment of our lives is a gift from God, and that every moment of our lives is replete with possibility and potential that we often overlook. Have you noticed humans are the only creatures on the face of the earth that keep time? Uh, squirrels, they don't check their calendars before they start gathering nuts for the winter. The brown bear doesn't set an alarm clock to signal when it's time to awaken from hibernation. The Pacific salmon, they just, they just seem to know when it's time to head upstream. The monarch butterfly, it, it just seems to know when it's time to leave southern Canada and, and head for the mountains of central Mexico. Only humans measure time by counting the seconds and the minutes and the hours and the days and the weeks and the months and the years. Only humans measure time. And only humans are scared to death over losing it or wasting it, or especially running out of it. What time is it? It's a question that God asks each of us in Scripture, and it has nothing to do with our clocks or our calendars. And it has everything to do with our very lives and the seasons that we are in, the meaning of those seasons and the meaning we make when we are in those seasons. What time is it? What season? Are you in? 
The writer of Ecclesiastes gives us a whole list of those life seasons. He is an ancient teacher of wisdom known as Kohelet in Hebrew. In the Greek, that word is Ecclesiastes, which is why we have the name of the book as such. And Kohelet understands time vastly different from from how we in the modern world understand it. Many scholars believe that he's writing this book in the years just after the Babylonian exile, that season in which the Hebrew people were sent into forced migration and then held captive in Babylon, where they stayed for 70 years. And it was a season of of terrible, devastating human loss. And not only human loss, but the loss of one's routines and rhythms, the loss of one's uh, religion. For many, it was the loss of one's faith. We've sort of been through a bit of an exile of the last 18 months or so. Maybe we can relate to Kohelet and his teaching. Maybe Kohelet was one of those who made it out alive from Babylon and came back to Jerusalem. We don't know for sure, but as with so many people who go through tragedy and difficulties in life, he has somehow emerged from this experience with, with this wisdom that is it's not book knowledge. It's the wisdom born of hard life and lived experience. He knows firsthand that life is just, it's no leisurely walk in the park. In fact, there are seasons in our lives, some of which are full of hope and and wonder, and some of which are full of dread and woe. And these seasons are inevitable, and they seem to be unavoidable as humans. But he says because they, they come and go, we should not allow the seasons themselves to be tyrants over our lives. Now, when you open up the book of Ecclesiastes and begin to read even from the very first line, you're going to have this sense that maybe Kohelet, the teacher, is a Debbie Downer. He's very pessimistic. He's cynical. In fact, so cynical, it seems, 38 times throughout the book, he says, all is vanity. All is it's like mist. It, it just, poof, it goes. He says, let me tell you, there's not much to write home about. God hasn't made it easy for us. I've seen it all, and it's, it's nothing but smoke, smoke, and spitting into the wind. Life's a corkscrew that can't be straightened, a minus that won't add up. Like I said, he's a real picker-upper, Right? But he's been on this long journey in search of the meaning of life. And he's learned a thing or two. On that journey, he first set out in search of wisdom. He, he thought maybe the meaning of life was becoming wise, but he writes about the fact that he became like the wisest wise guy in all of Jerusalem. And still, he said, it was worth nothing. He says, much learning earns you much trouble. The more you know, the more you hurt. Isn't there such profound truth in that? From there, he goes in search of the meaning of life by pursuing self-indulgences and pleasure, 
food and wine, silver and gold, lovers and luxuries. And he had hoped to discover that, that happiness could be found in these experiences, pl- prosperity and pleasure. But he, he realized, someday I'm going to die, and I can't take this with me. He said, I took a good look at everything I've done, but I saw nothing but smoke and spitting into the wind. There was, there was nothing to any of it, nothing. And just when you start to think that maybe Kohelet really needs to see a therapist and get some help, we discover that he's not actually cynical after all. He's a realist who wants to see the world not through rose-colored glasses, but with eyes of deep honesty and clarity. Because when you can look hard at the world and at your life and still find God in the midst of it, then you will prevail. He's a realist, and he wants to bring us along on this journey of looking at our lives with utter honesty. And so, in the passage you heard read, he names 28 of these life seasons. And they're all arranged in sharp contrast to each other. And yet they are are an undeniable part of the human experience. He lists 28 of them. And the number 28 is, there's some significance here. Uh, 28 is a multiple of seven and four. For the Hebrew people, seven signifies completeness. The God of the universe created the world in seven days and was done. And four represents the four directions of the compass. In other words, these 28 seasons, they encompass the breadth and fullness of life experience. Notice it begins with the first line. There's a time to be born and a time to die. And then he begins to list all these experiences. And you think, okay, born and die. So the left side must be all positive and the right side all the negative stuff. But after a couple lines, he flips it and the negative goes first and then the positive and then the positive and the negative. And it's a journey. This is our life. The twists and turns of lived experience. One day we are on our knees weeping and the next we're on our feet dancing. Begins with birth. But where does it end? The very last line. There's a time for war and a time for peace. Kohelet's question is this. How do you live your life in such a way that you go from birth and you end with shalom, whole? So all these other experiences don't break you or destroy you. How do you do that? He names these experiences, some of which maybe you're going through birth and death, weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing, loving and hating, tearing down and building up, planting and pruning, war and peace. Think about your life right now. Are you in one of those seasons? Are you in between seasons? Kohelet suggests that that we all go through these seasons in life. This is just how the world works. 
It's not that it has to work this way. It's just that it does work this way. It's not that God preordains that you'll go through some experience or season coming up here. It just means that the way God ordered the universe, there's a really good chance you're going to go through these in your life. The universe operates with with its own inner logic and, and rhythm of seasons. Only God knows why the world is set up the way it is. But in the face of such unexplainable mysteries about why and when, Kohelet says, don't waste your time asking those questions. Why me? Don't waste your time worrying about the future or how much time you have left. Don't even waste your time, he says, about the afterlife. Instead, he gives some of the most practical advice I have ever read in all Scripture. He says, I made up my mind that there's nothing better for us to do than to have a good time in whatever we're doing. Have you ever heard such great advice? Almost trite. Uh, Have a good time. And he breaks this advice down into two very practical prescriptions for life. The first of which is this. Don't postpone joy. Kohelet says, there's nothing better to do than go ahead and have a good time and get the most that we can out of life. Eat, drink, make the most of your job. It's God's gift. I don't know about you, but this advice can sound a little strange for a Christian. Eat, drink, have a good time. Is that okay? I mean, what about global poverty? What about systemic racism? What about the orphan, the widow? What? I mean, there's so much hurt in the world. Is it okay to have a good time? I mean, there's so much pain and suffering and sorrow. Is it okay? I think Christians, sometimes we get it wrong. When we think about the life of Jesus, his daily living, we have this image maybe in our heads of a Jesus who was always so serious and intense and consumed with self-sacrifice and serving and feeding and healing and preaching and teaching, so much so that he, he got so beleaguered that he had, to, he had to break away and head to the hills to rest and pray. So we have this idea of Jesus, this pious, holy man, maybe with a halo around his head and a chorus of angels filling his airspace with Gregorian chant. Let me remind you, there are countless more stories of Jesus at a party than at prayer. It's not that prayer wasn't important, but Jesus took time to have a good time. Well, this makes sense, too. I mean, when you turn water into wine, you're going to have a lot of good friends, right? (laughs) I mean, you're going to get a lot of invites to parties with piñatas and we're going to have a good time, and you're going to be expected to have a good time as well. If they had paparazzi back then in the first century, Jesus would have been on the cover of every magazine, right? Hanging out with sinners and the sketchy. He was on everyone's guest list. Why? 
Because Jesus wasn't just the life of the party. He was the party. He wasn't just the light of the world. He brought light to every party. Uh, Ministry was hard. It took its toll. He knew suffering. He knew weeping. He knew what it felt like to go to war. He knew what it felt like to be plucked up. But he refused to allow these seasons to define his life. He looked for the gifts that Kohelet speaks of. Good people. Good company. Good food. Good times. He gave himself permission to not postpone joy, knowing that his life was short. Can you find time in your own life, little glimpses and hints of joy in the seasons that you're in? Whether you are in a season of planting or being plucked up, whether you're on your knees praying and weeping, or on your feet dancing, can you name and receive and even give joy. Years ago, in the very first church I served, I sat down with a woman at my, at my, at my desk, and, and she explained to me that she had been estranged from her mom for many years after she was divorced, and her mother didn't approve of it. And now her mother was ill, stage four lung cancer, maybe had three months at most. And this woman before me was this Wonderfully successful CEO, so gifted and, and, and brilliant, well-respected. She sat in front of me and said, I think I'm going to take a leave of absence. And I want to bring my mother into my home and care for her in her last days. What do you think? And she came to me. This was just months after my own father had died. And in those last weeks of my father's life, we, we went away for a week and we had a fishing trip together, just the two of us. It was wonderfully healing, great reconciliation that was delayed for so long. It was a time that I will cherish for the rest of my life. And so I said to this woman, yeah, you should do it. But just be aware, it's going to be the worst, hardest season of your life, and you will have to every day look for little glimpses and hints of joy. Well, before that week was over, she announced her leave of absence. She cleared out the guest room. She wheeled in these big canisters of oxygen, moved her mother in. Three months later, we stood at her mother's graveside, and she said to all these people gathered there that day, she said, this was the hardest season of my life, but the best. And she named these little moments of joy, sitting at the breakfast table in quiet conversation, the slow, long walks to the neighborhood, staying up and watching Wheel of Fortune every single night with her mom, the back rubs when her mother's pain became too great. Make the most of it, says Kohelet. Don't postpone joy. And Kohelet gives us one other prescription for life. It's to always stand in awe before God. In other words, in whatever season you are in, to know that God is working behind the scenes, creating moments of potential and possibility for newness in your life. 
So that when we come to God, we say, why me and why this and why now? And God says to us, what next? Where to? Why not now? Every day we are presented with decisions in every season of life. Every day we make, on average, 35,000 decisions. Now, some of those, most of those are really trivial. Um, Should I have Captain Crunch or Cocoa Puffs today? Should I wear the blue socks or the brown socks or no socks at all? Should I go to church or should I stay home and watch NFL all day? With the exception of that last question, uh, most of these are not really existential decisions. But some are, and some are fraught with possibility, potential. You might ask yourself, in this season of pruning in my life, will I continue to cling to that which is not life-giving, or will I let go? In this season when so many are keeping silence over issues of justice in the world, will I speak up and be heard and be counted? In this season of hate and division in our world, will I take the higher path of Jesus and practice compassion and kindness? In other words, what time is it for me right now? When you stand before God in great awe and you ask that question, the now becomes undeniably real and replete with overflowing possibilities. And your sense of awe in what God can do is never greater and never filled with more expectation. It's what the prophet experienced, the prophet Isaiah. One of the most memorable passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, when he receives his call, it's a horrible season. He begins a story in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. A year of uncertainty and doubt. Who's going to lead the people? Where are we going to go? Who's going to fill this leadership void? Isaiah stands before God in awe, with arms wide open, and says that famous line that we sing so often here. Here I am. Send me. It happens. And it could happen to you. Close with this ancient story. It's a conversation between a a disciple and a wise sage. The disciple asks, "Where, where shall I look for enlightenment? Here, the wise one says, when will it happen? It's happening right now, says the wise one. Then why don't I experience it? Because you don't look. What should I look for? Nothing. Just look. Look at what? At anything your eyes set upon. But must I look in a special way? No. The ordinary way will do. But don't I always look the ordinary way? No, you don't. But why ever not? Because to look, you must be here. And you are mostly somewhere else. Takeaways for today. For everything, there is a season. There's a time for everything under heaven. Life is too short to postpone joy. And in every season of our lives, 
God is always asking us, what are you going to do now? Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.